0: This is what happens when the industry is left to police itself. There isn't an outside agency that's saying these are the scientific standards that you have to follow if you say something is sustainably produced. Hi, I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Ben Unglesby. We're senior reporters with Retail Dive, and this is our podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends. And talk
1: about some of the things that don't always make it into our stories.
0: This is The Backroom.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to the back room. Today we're talking about sustainability. The team just wrapped up a pretty extensive series looking at different aspects and different stories within that giant sort of sustainability umbrella. Everything from from mattresses to fashion to uh to supply chain. Daphne, you know, one topic that that comes up again and again around how does your regulation Factor into to different sustainability issues. You were looking at the fashion industry specifically. Why, why don't you kind of recap what uh, what you learned?
0: Yeah, well, so when we were first looking at doing this series, obviously, fashion is on everybody's radar when it comes to sustainability because it has just such a poor track record. I turned to a couple of my sources, and you know, people gave me a few ideas about. What is the most important thing when it comes to sustainability and and apparel? And one of my sources, Kat Eves, who is a stylist in Hollywood and is very adamant about always choosing ethically sourced items for her customers, said, I could point to this, I could point to that, but the worst thing for fashion and sustainability, is the fact that the industry is almost completely unregulated and so is policing itself and just doing a very bad job. So that took me down the road of some interesting things, partly because... It turns out that's actually changing. And what surprised me the most, I think, is that it's actually changing in the US, not just the EU. I always think about the EU as sort of, you know, the more pioneering when it comes to regulation of any industry, but especially around climate change. The needle seems to be moving slightly to watchdog the industry more and put limits on it. It's not clear how much of a difference it will make considering how big the problems are but
1: and it's interesting you you mentioned that about the eu that that came and i i wrote two stories one about investment one about sort of supply chain emissions in in both it came up i mean it just just becomes clear the the longer you look at it that the eu is you know far ahead on a lot of these things <laughs> not in regulation but sort of everything climate and esg related it seems like they've started taking these these issues more seriously across the pond but it's making its way over to the u.s but in, in fashion specifically where's the where's the drive coming from like where are the most where's the most interesting potential for change happening right now
0: I would say there's probably two basic areas that are the most interesting. I mean, the industry itself has worked to clean its act up a little bit, you know, making a pair of jeans is famously uses tons and tons of water and the dye process makes it hugely toxic, which affects water supplies around, you know, the communities where the factories are located and just all kinds of stuff. I would say the two most interesting areas... Both here and in the EU, center around claims being made by brands around the environmental steps that they're taking to improve and workers' rights because the conditions continue to be horrific, the pay is woeful, and Brands are constantly agreeing in theory or in spirit to a lot of initiatives. But when it comes to putting ink to paper, just recently, there was a group that was trying to get a number of brands to work with a union that is sort of negotiating to put in the place some kind of basic safety standards that came out of the whole Rana Plaza, that horrific fire that happened 10 years ago. You know, if we can't sign on the dotted line when it comes to preventing that level of ridiculous destruction, it, you know, it's it's now unfortunately become just symbolic of how terrible it is for garment workers across the world. So those are the two things really in the EU is where greenwashing is an area that governments are willing to just call brands out on claims and call them out on the signs that they're citing. That kind of stuff is not happening here so much.
1: They're calling them out specifically over what how they're talking to customers and, and the claims they're making to customers as opposed to disclosures they're making to investors or, or governments.
0: It's not really so much on the marketing level. In one instance that I'm thinking of, Norway actually called out h and m for using a standard to define a level of sustainability in some of their garments, which by the way h and m is probably the largest sustainable brand within it probably produces some of the most sustainably produced apparel in the world. It's just that it's still you know a minority of their total production. There's a group that was setting standards using scientific benchmarks and everything. And the Norwegian government not only took h H&M and to task and said, you're violating our laws. They also said that the group's standards aren't trustworthy. So now that group is having to go back to the drawing board because it's lost some credibility. And it kind of circles back to this is what happens when the industry is left to police itself. There isn't an outside agency that's saying these are the scientific standards that you have to follow if you say something is sustainably produced. It's the industry itself making up those standards.
1: Yeah as it happens that case came up tangentially in one of the the stories i was working on because the standard that h&m was using i that had to do with materials i believe right
0: yes exactly
1: well the the same organization hig also has a method for estimating your your scope 3 supply chain emissions and a lot of people rely on these kinds of estimates to to tell them you know you 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 put a product in or put sort of what you're buying as a, as a brand or a retailer in into the algorithm, into the database, and it spits out a number around emissions or, or whatever it is in terms of sustainability you're trying to measure. HIG is used by a lot of brands. If there's something wrong with the measure, then there's a lot of estimates out there that have issues with them.
0: And I think that to the extent that the industry really does want to improve, I don't think this is entirely brands just wanting to get away with something. I think they want to make money, but they also don't want to be the villains in the climate change story. I think they also probably want as much of a plug and play type of solution as they navigate what is already, you know, supply chains, as you know, very complex on a good day, even if you're not taking climate change into account. You know, I think there there's just maybe a realization that to the extent that the industry needs watching and the industry desires some level of plug and play solutions that maybe governments have to step in and say, these are the standards that you have to use. These are the goals you have to meet. New York State tried to do that, and it's kind of a holy mess because their proposed legislation over there is so ambitious and complex that even some of, you know, climate change activists affiliated with the fashion industry are are saying, you know, time out. I think we might need to take a breath and chunk this down a little bit. And it, I think it went from ambitious to sort of overcomplicated, overreaching. It's sort of like if if you think of legislation as something that ideally you get different Stakeholders to agree to. And maybe it's a compromise where it's not the most ideal thing on one side, but you accomplish something and you get it through. This is so almost like designed to repel all stakeholders. (laughs) Nevertheless, weirdly, in New York, I think that they they see momentum because there's a lot of appreciation for what the legislation is trying to do, even though it's kind of a monster that bill. I think it's seen as sort of a good first step.
1: Well, and I mean, brands and retailers have a reason to want regulation on, on a lot of this when it comes to carbon, when it comes to fashion sustainability, when it comes to, to labor practices. If you're going to try and do the right thing, you don't want the wrong thing to continue to be a competitive advantage <laughs> for someone else. I, think, I mean, that's kind of the reason why rules exist at all. It's just a matter of getting the right rules in place, which, I mean, as you see in New York, is very difficult when you're dealing with a with a very complicated, very complicated subject.
0: Right. It's, it's complicated even before you start trying to change it. The other thing I think that the industry might be realizing is whereas sustainability is a selling point and Gen Z undeniably is hyper aware of the climate change crisis and is getting impatient with the world for not solving it. I'm not sure we can count on the consumer, including Gen Z, to opt for sustainably made products. And that's where I think the level playing field comes in. Sustainably made products tend to be more expensive. So if you require everyone to stick to some of the same standards, everyone's going to have to pay those costs. I don't know if you got into that consumer side at all. It,
1: it came up a lot because New York aside, we've known about the dangers of global warming and all the various potential risks that we face. I mean, decades, my entire life, we've been aware and, and going back well before that. We've never had uh, like major legislation passed around the climate in the U.S. And some of the work that was going on in the executive branch basically just got put on ice by the the Supreme Court. There's been a conspicuous absence of of government action on climate change in the country. That leaves the consumer as one of the few forces to to push the industry to to change. One of the stories I wrote was about investors. Investors both in stocks and in debt instruments uh, like bonds and and loans. ESG investing has grown by several factors in, in a short amount of time. You know, a couple of the people I talk to, it's not necessarily that the investors are like, we need to save the world, let's use our money to do it. A lot of them are chasing consumers. And when you're talking about investment in, in the retail and fashion space, the investors see that this is where the consumer is going. The consumer likes brands that are doing serious work on sustainability. So they're chasing those consumers through the companies that they invest in, thinking that that's, that's a good financial bet. Whereas some, there are probably some investors that also are truly enthusiastic about, you know, seeing change through through investing. But I think a lot of it is probably this is, this is where the consumers are going. So, but the consumers are, I mean, they're only as powerful as the information that they have in front of them and they have to make choices every day and it, it's hard to know what to choose. And I mean, with climate change, I mean, there's a whole global industrial system. <laughs> and cons- I can't really fall on consumers to reshape that. I mean, they don't I don't know that the average consumer even as well informed as they may be would really even know how to go about using their purchasing to to change the global supply chain.
0: And it goes back to what information are they getting? You know, what what do the claims mean? And even with investors, I definitely think that since that's bigger money that's the kind of thing that can reshape a board which means boards are making decisions based on sustainability perhaps or the C suite the really you know the leaders of the company are taking it seriously not as a simply a marketing vehicle but something on which to base the operation of the company
1: right and and in a lot of cases you know the the esg lenders the esg investors they can be very sophisticated and they can be more sophisticated than than the company executives at least on sustainability issues and they're starting to design entire instruments based on sustainability whereas you know you could have a bond or a loan and it's tied to specific targets. It's tied to your emissions. It's tied to your materials, you know, what share of your clothes use sustainable materials, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's a way to kind of put your money where your mouth is. But there again, there, there's all the same problems of information that we see elsewhere in sustainability and all the same issues of, of greenwashing that we see elsewhere. And, you know, I, me- I mentioned in my story, there's an investment manager for i think it was blackrock one of the big mutual fund companies and they they do a big esg business and and a lot of that is just indexing mutual funds based on sustainability and a lot of those mutual funds don't look much different from your s p 500 or any other group of corporate stocks and he called it a giant greenwashing scam basically and so there's that tension all throughout. Everyone's kind of, I, I think it's a good thing that at least they're seeing it as an advantage. <laughs> Corporations and retailers and, and and clothing brands are seeing it as an advantage to be sustainable. Like that's a good first step. But also, I mean, there's, there's a tension between the risk of greenwashing or being called out in greenwashing and between that and just the need to do something right now, because Again, when it comes to climate change, the clock is ticking. We're way behind. We're in the most critical years. I mean, I mean, some of the most critical years have come and gone already, and and now we're like in the fourth quarter, and we're halfway through. <laughs> we're twenty points behind, and you gotta you gotta do something. You know, you gotta you got you gotta put the ball in the air.
0: Which I've seen just in you know. If you watch basketball, you know, that the fourth quarter, you no. can get it done, but it, it, you know, it takes, it takes talent and effort. I think part of that is that for a lot of public companies, I get the sense that the ESG team that is siloed from the actual business doing. So the ESG goals are sort of treated as nice to haves, not imperatives. When I did a story as part of the series, actually, our sustainability series, looking at how major retailers were treating union efforts across their chain versus the endorsements of workers' rights like collective bargaining that were emphatically embraced in their ESG reports, it's really not possible to endorse collective bargaining as a worker right and then say, you know, it's it's not really going to work for us or worse actively fight workers that are, you know, trying to bargain collectively. It was interesting for a couple of the retailers that I spoke to, they didn't want to go on the record, but they couldn't answer the question when I flipped it. So, the classic line from most of these guys is we believe in unions. We you know, our, our workers can join a union anytime they want. It, we just don't think it, it interferes with our relationship with our employees. But if I turned it around and said, well, then why do you endorse collective bargaining as a basic human right? as outlined by the UN, because this is where these ESG teams tend to get their material. I'm sure they have a committee meeting of some kind and they say, yes, we're going to adopt the UN. Seems vetted, right? Looks good. But the UN says that collective bargaining is a basic human right. So when I ask them, okay, if, if you don't think it works at your company, why do you endorse it as a basic human right? And that's what they can't answer because any other basic human right, you can't say, you know, we think adequate, clean water is, is a basic human right. We just don't think it's appropriate for our workforce. You know, <laughs> it's, it, it's either a basic human right or it is, you know. It, it can't. It just. it's just. There's a disconnect that they couldn't explain. A couple of them wanted to go back to their teams to find out the answer. I never got anything on the record. I think increasingly looking at you know the other thing is the the annual report. Of course, unionization is treated as a business risk, whereas in the ESG report, it's treated as a fundamental right. So, I think some of that disconnect, some of that siloization, is going to have to go away for any of these conversations to seem at all real yeah
1: i mean it's also interesting because that that also just seems like a a weird example but something that is sort of prevalent in these discussions is when you talk about sustainability when you talk about esg well under the heading of esg that's a lot. <laughs> e is, the E and the S and the G are all huge in and of themselves.
0: Which by the way, we haven't said out loud what they are. We should probably. Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> I just assume. yeah, Environment, social governance, right?
0: Right? Yeah. So we're talking <laughs> about taking responsibility in your operations for your environmental impact, social issues, and the governance of your company the issues are almost endless within that and
1: the ability to just sort of endorse i you know and 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 with a lot of this when i was talking to people for for both of my stories you know how how do you determine what's real and what's just like box checking with a lot of this i think there's everyone's kind of looking to their left looking at the right trying to figure out what the best practices are and what the right positions to hold are. And, and, and that's another problem with the sustainability is it's future-based. When it comes to workforce issues, when it comes to you know labor in your supply chain, when it comes to your emissions, you set goals and those goals are in the future. <laughs> it's, it's, real, it's real easy to set a goal. This came up in the story I did on scope three emissions. So you're talking about emissions all the way down the chain and retailers are setting net zero goals and setting a lot of them, at least, are, are setting fairly, I mean, meaningful goals. Probably a lot of them are not fast enough or not ambitious enough. But a lot of them are setting goals. But there was a survey that found, I mean, roughly two thirds of retailers. the The most that you could say about them was that they were they were making no progress. <laughs> I mean, like the, the, something like seventeen percent. Were, were tracking with their own goals for Scope 3 emissions. The vast majority of them were making no progress, had set goals, but had not done anything to figure out how they're actually gonna achieve them. And then a small fraction had set no goals. So it's really easy to set a goal, really hard to, to actually achieve it. When you're talking about Scope 3, in, in between setting a goal and achieving it, there is once again that information problem of how do you even figure out how many emissions you have in your supply chain, where they are, both from a, a general standpoint and down to the the company level. I mean, supply chains are so complicated right now. And, and, and that's part of this story. When you're talking about human rights abuses in supply chains, when you're talking about emissions, when you're talking about pollution, we've gone from the brand is a manufacturer to a model where you're outsourcing it to a vast, loosely related network of companies in all kinds of different countries. And those companies have their own suppliers and you can go down the chain two or three or four or five times. Well, yeah, it gets real hard to put an end to abuses of, of labor in there. It gets hard to even know what's going on. It's hard to know what you know the, the industrial emissions and industrial side effects of all of that But that's not an excuse. I mean, these companies made supply chains. (laughs) They opted to move from a model where they controlled the process to one where they outsourced it. You don't get to say now, well, I have no control over this.
0: And and I'm sure they control for other things. I mean, if they get things back from the factory that aren't to their specifications, they're going to either get on a plane and march over there or get on the phone and... Say this is unacceptable. We're we're we. This is not. We wanted this design, not that design. We wanted this quantity, not that quantity. We wanted this color, not that color. We wanted this much emissions, not that.
1: Although although we found out last year, sometimes they can't do that. (laughs) So you can think of it all in terms of risk. There's always a risk that when once you sort of diced up your supply chain and and outsourced it, that things could go wrong in terms of daily business operations. And and there were like, I, I had heard last year, like there were people who didn't, they needed to call their supplier. They didn't know who to talk to. <laughs> I mean, they, they didn't know who like in the, you know, who in the office that they were supposed to talk to because that's kind of the nature for some supply chains. I mean, I think some of the weaker ones, but, and so that was a risk. Well, ESG is a risk too, in, inside of supply chains. And it's one we probably all could have foreseen and probably a lot of people did proceed, but it's it's one that the industry accepted for a long time, but it's one that's that's coming to a head right now.
0: This is partly what the New York bill was trying to do, which is to say you need to identify this percentage of your suppliers, make sure that they meet these standards. Once they meet those standards, they drop to the, you know, finished pile and you have to find new ones to identify and work work your way down the chain. It's sort of an admirable approach, except that it, you know, anyone who's doing a good job is just constantly getting more work done. They're just, their inbox is just refilling as they accomplish these things. But, you know, I think it's really probably the answer is requirements. It's tougher to do when you have an international supply chain the way we have. But if the government, and it probably would have to be the federal government in the U.S. and the E.U., figure out ways to truly regulate or force brands to only use the suppliers that are meeting standards, that's when stuff really starts to happen. This goal setting and the feel good and the box checking, as you said, and the dependence on the consumer making the right choices, I I don't think is going to get us there on time. I think that fourth quarter is going to run out.
1: Well, and in the long run, it can make things easier for suppliers too. If uh, U.S. and Western brands and retailers were all working with a common standard, and we're all going to all the suppliers around the world saying, "Hey, this is this is what we need. This is what we need from you," and we have no choice, <laughs> it, it it gives clarity to and, and it gives a little bit of clarity to the suppliers as well. And it it probably makes it so that they don't have a hundred different standards that they're that they're working with. To be fair, at least they're talking about it. There's more going on now and more serious effort going on now than there has been in the past. But the world just kind of needs a lot more.
0: Well, I think this area, this tension between what retailers can do, what they must do, what they should do, what they are doing basically defines our assignment as we continue to cover sustainability,
1: which we will. Thanks for joining, and uh, we'll be following all of this and keeping you informed. This episode of The Backroom was produced and edited by Caroline Jansen. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.